Amen. Thank you. Good morning, Haynes Creek. I hope you're doing well today. Thank you for joining us in worship. If it is your first Sunday, I just want to say a special welcome to you. We are we're thrilled and excited that you're here checking things out as our guest today. And uh, uh, I just would, would love a chance to reach out and follow up with you, let you know how much we appreciate your visits. If you do me a huge favor, before you head home, stop by our welcome table out there. We have a welcome card. We'd love for you to fill that out. Again, that just gives me an opportunity to reach out with a phone call or an email and just say thank you for your visit. Um, And then also we have a free gift we'd love to put in your hands today before you head home. So again, please stop by there before you head out. And uh, church, we we are now in the last week of our current sermon series that we've been calling Good News, where we are looking at the message of Scripture, the story of Scripture. What does God uh, want us to know about Him, about us, about life, about history and everything going on? What's His message to us? So we're going to wrap that up today. Uh, but before we dig in, uh, let me just kind of give you a heads up about where we're going for the next couple of weeks. So we're ending this current sermon series today. Uh, the next two weeks are just kind of going to be standalone, not part of a series uh, for the next two weeks. And then the week after that, three weeks from today is Easter Sunday. So yeah, Easter Sunday is, is just three weeks away. Uh, take advantage, be inviting. This is a great opportunity uh, for us to invite those who do not currently have a church home, who maybe have been out of church for a while, or who don't know the gospel, never heard about Jesus. Uh, this is a perfect opportunity to invite and ask them to come join us as we celebrate our risen Savior uh, on Sunday, April 9th. So that's three Sundays from now. And then and then the week after Easter, we're going to be uh, beginning a brand new sermon series. Uh, we're going to get back to what we typically do, which is going verse by verse through books of the Bible. And we, uh, starting the week after Easter, are going to dig into the Old Testament book of Ruth. Uh, Old Testament book of Ruth. It's a little book towards the beginning of your Bible, but just an incredible story about God's heart and love for his people. So I hope you can join us for that. That'll start after Easter, about a month from today. So uh, we're going to finish up, like I said, today. And and what we've been doing is looking at the message of Scripture. And when we come to Scripture, what we see is there are 66 books in our Bible, but they are all united telling the same story. The same story. This is often called uh, the meta-narrative of Scripture. That's a big word that means just one connected, overarching story. And when we talk about God's big story, His message to us, we kind of see it in four different parts. And we've, we've talked through three of those parts. We, we start with creation. So we started with Genesis 1 and 2. What does creation tell us about God? What does creation tell us about us? And it tells us that, that God created this perfect world, and then he created us to live in this perfect world and have a perfect relationship with him. So that's the first part, creation. The second part of God's story is the fall. The fall. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that, that all of that perfection got broken when Adam and Eve decided to follow their own way to trust in themselves, to believe Satan, that that wicked old serpent, to trust in him rather than God, they broke away from God and, and sin came into the world and corrupted everything. And what we've been saying during the last few weeks is that everything that happens from that point on is about God bringing us back to Genesis chapters one and two. It's about God fixing and reversing the curse of sin to bring us back into dwelling with him in perfection. So we've got creation, the fall, the second or the third part of God's story is what we can call redemption. So creation, fall, and redemption or salvation. And this is what we've been spending the last few weeks talking about. 
The first part of God reversing the curse of sin, the curse of the fall, is to save us, to rescue us spiritually. And the the Bible tells us very clearly that Jesus is the one who does that. Jesus came uh, to earth to live the perfect life that you and I never could. See, our sin makes us stand condemned before God. We deserve his wrath and punishment, and we deserve hell forever because of our sin. But Jesus came to solve all of that. He came and gave his life on the cross for us. He took our place on the cross, died the death that we deserve. And and in that moment, he took on all of our sin. Three days later, he rises from the dead, defeating sin and death and the devil. And, And the Bible tells us that when we put our faith and our trust in him, he saves us. He rescues us. He forgives us of all of our sins. And he leads us on this path of living for him and following him throughout this life. So that's what we've been talking about. And now this brings us to the fourth part, the end. We come to the end of God's story. In this last part, we can use the word restoration, or you could use consummation, new creation. There's a lot of different words that are thrown around for this idea of of how God's message ends. How does the story end? How does scripture end? And and like I said, we've talked a lot about what this message of God means for us, that, that God's message is good news, that it's good news of salvation. But God's plan... God's purpose in all of history goes beyond just our own individual salvation. It's not just about us and what God does for us. No, his restoration is not just for us. It is for for all things. It is a cosmic restoration, a cosmic new creation of all things, bringing it into God's purpose and plan. So God has an end. He's got a plan. He's got a purpose. He's got, he's got a way that he's working all of this out. And scripture speaks to this, but, we, but it doesn't give us all the answers, right? It doesn't give us everything. So we, we do have glimpses and ideas of what happens at the end. And that's where we're going to spend our time today. And theologians uh, use this, this term to talk about uh, this idea of what does God tell us happens at the end of all history. They, they use the term eschatology. If you've heard eschatology, it literally just means the, the study or the knowledge of the last things, of the end. And there's a, there's a whole lot of opinions and thoughts about eschatology. Maybe you grew up in church like I did, and you probably heard a lot of different things out there. There's no shortage of resources and books. There's no shortage of really solid, good teaching on eschatology. And there's also no shortage of, man, we are like in the deep end of crazy town when it comes to eschatology. So you do have to be careful. So for, for our time today, uh, we're going to stay as close to scripture as we can. What are the clear things that we see about the end, that we see about eschatology in scripture. So uh, if you love talking about the rapture and the millennium and things like that, we're not going to get into that. All right. We're not going to get into those hotly debated things. Sure. I've got no shortage of opinion on that too, but but we're going to, again, stay close to scripture. What are the clear teachings of God about the end? And like I said, the eschatology, this, this idea of what happens at the end, it's scattered all throughout your Bible. It's not just a New Testament idea. Uh, it's scattered all throughout Old Testament New Testament. And, and in particular, there, there's a, a popular place where it's talked about, and that is the last book of your Bible, the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, that is where we're going to hang out today. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter 21. It's the last book of your Bible and the second to last chapter in your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, it's all good. We will have the verses on that screen. And we also have Bibles uh, on our table. We'd love for you to take one of those as our gift to you. So turn to Revelation chapter 21. And again, 
when it comes to eschatology, there's no shortage of thoughts and opinions and debate. Same with the book of Revelation. There is a lot of opinions, a lot of thought, and they're all scattered in a wide spectrum of, of you know, again, crazy town ideas and solid biblical truth. So, uh, again, we're, we're going to stay close to what, what do we know, what's, what's clearly taught here. And there are parts of Revelation that do give us a clear picture of what happens at the end, of what all of this has been leading towards. From, from the moment God's story begins in Genesis 1 to the very end of all history, there are some things that are clearly taught in this part of the Bible. So again, we're going to hang out in, in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. I'll read that in a minute. But let me just kind of give you a um, high-level overview, if I can do this in two minutes, hopefully, uh, background to Revelation. Just I think it helps us kind of put everything in perspective this way. So Revelation is actually a letter. It's a letter written to seven different churches scattered across modern-day Asia Minor. And the thing with these seven churches is they were all facing some form of intense persecution from the surrounding culture, whether it was uh, violence towards them for following Jesus or just this, this intense pressure from the culture to compromise their faithfulness to Jesus, compromise on, on the truth that they were living in, in Jesus here. So, so there's this, this pressure, this, this persecution coming against these churches to compromise their faithfulness and God calls us to faithfulness despite the outside pressure to compromise and, and to help these churches walk in faithfulness or, or come back to faithfulness, God gives them the letter of Revelation. So that's the, the main point of the book of Revelation. It doesn't just speak to the future. It speaks hope and encouragement in the right now, in the present. When these churches received this letter and, and they read it, they would have read hope and encouragement for right here, right now, not just in the future. And it's the same for us. When we read Revelation, it gives us hope and encouragement for right now. Because we are living in a time where our culture is far from God. And we are facing pressure all around to compromise what we know to be true. What we know it means to walk in faithfulness to Jesus. And Revelation speaks hope and encouragement to that. And what Revelation does, it, it tells it, even in that word revelation, that word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, and it means basic truth, or the basic meaning of that word means an un uncovering or an unveiling. And what God is doing here in the book of Revelation, what he's doing to give us hope and encouragement is he's, he's peeling back the curtain He's uncovering what, what true reality is. And he's, what, what he's doing here is, is, is focus on my work, what I'm doing, not what's around you, not what's going on around you. He's uncovering his work right here, right now, not just for the future, but, but right here, right now. So the main message of Revelation is, is things are not what they seem. Things are not what they seem. There's a lot going on. There's a lot that, that can direct our minds away from Jesus. And what Revelation does is it peels back the curtain and say, no, 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 there, there's a bigger story happening here. There's more than meets the eye. Don't just focus on what's going on in the world around you. Focus on what God is doing. So that's what brings us to Revelation. So let's go ahead and read Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8. It says this, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. 
They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. He also said, right, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, it is done. I'm the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the springs of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things and I will be his God and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. So this is where all of history is leading towards. This is God's end game. This is his plan for how he's going to end everything as we see it. It will end and we will spend eternity with God on the new heavens and the new earth. That is our ultimate destination. That is where everything is headed. Those of us who have put our faith in Jesus, we will spend eternity with him. We'll spend eternity with him. That's such good news. That's such amazing truth. So I want to dig into what that means. And to do that, I want to answer two questions for us. Uh, one, what happens at the end? What, again, what are some of those clear things in scripture that God tells us will happen at the end? So what happens at the end and why does this matter? What does this mean for me? How should these truths, these events, these things that we see in scripture, how should that impact the way I'm living right here, right now in 2023? So that's where we're going today. So what happens and what does that mean for me? So to answer the question, what happens at the end? Again, we're gonna stay high level. We're gonna stay with stuff that is clearly explained and taught in scripture. And, and we won't dig into the debated stuff. If you have, you know, you wanna talk about that, there's, I always tell people, there's two things I nerd out on in life. One is the NBA, NBA basketball, anytime you want to talk about that, I'm down. And then two, theology, specifically eschatology. I love digging into this because there's no shortage of resources and thoughts and opinions, and it's just really fun for me. Um, so if you ever want to talk about this, let me know. I'm down to talk. But again, we're, we're going to stay high level today. So five things that happen at the end. The first one, first one, Jesus returns. Jesus returns. That's the first thing that happens. That's the most important thing, perhaps the most significant thing that happens is Jesus comes back. This is the most mentioned event in scripture. When, when we talk about eschatology, when we see what is happening at the end, the most mentioned event is this. Jesus comes back. He comes back. So when Jesus was here on the earth and he lived that perfect life and he, and he died on the cross and three days later on Easter Sunday, he, he steps out of the grave. What, what the Bible tells us is that he spent about 40 more days here on the earth with his followers, with his disciples, teaching them. And then at some point after those 40 days, Jesus ascends back into heaven. He ascends back into heaven. And, and that moment is described in Acts chapter one. So Jesus is with his disciples. He's kind of giving them his final thoughts and teachings. And then all of a sudden, boom, he just, he just goes back up. He just goes back in the clouds. I mean, that, that would have been wild, right? You're just standing there talking to Jesus. And all of a sudden he's like levitating back up into the sky. And, and what Acts tells us is the disciples are just kind of standing there going like this which we would have too, right? Like, can you imagine Jesus is right here and then, oh, he's lifted back up and just, he's, he keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And then it's like, I don't see him anymore. It's like, you know, when you let go of a balloon and you can kind of see it and you can follow it along. It's like, oh, I still see it. Like that, that's Jesus just floating right back up to heaven. That would have been awesome to see. And so the disciples are just standing there like, whoa, that was awesome. 
And then it says that these two angels came and stood beside the disciples. And this is what it says in Acts 1.11. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? The same Jesus who has been taken away from you into heaven will come in the same way that you have seen him going into heaven. He's coming back. Jesus is coming back. He will return. And Jesus talked about this many times. One of those places is is John 14. John 14 verses one through three says this. Don't let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. He's coming back. Jesus is coming back. He will return. And when the Bible talks about Jesus's return with Jesus coming back, he brings all of this other stuff that we're going to talk about. He kicks off the, the what Bible theologians call the eternal state, right? This, this uh, we're living with Jesus for all of eternity in complete perfection, new heavens, new earth. It starts when Jesus returns. So that's a day that we should long for, that we should want to see, that we should be, the end of of Revelation is, is come Lord Jesus, come. That should be our prayer. That should be our hope. That should be our cry. Come Jesus. It's a day that should fill us with hope and joy and peace and comfort. It's, It's a beautiful truth that Jesus is coming back. So Jesus will return. The second thing that happens at the end is the final defeat and end to all evil and sin the final defeat of evil and sin. When Jesus comes back, he will put an end to all evil, to all pain, to all suffering, to all brokenness. He puts an end to all of that. And it's, and it's amazing and it's awesome. And, and there's this, this picture, I won't read it, but in Revelation 19, we see this picture of of all the nations, the evil, wicked nations gathering uh, before Jesus for this final battle. And, and, and Jesus comes down and it gives this picture of him riding on a white horse and with a sword coming out of his mouth, like just awesome. Like I would love to see a movie. Like that would just be really cool to see that happen. And so they're like all geared up for battle and Jesus just wipes them out. Like it's not even a thing. Like it's just, it's over in a millisecond. Like when Jesus comes, it just, I, it doesn't matter how big and how powerful and how wicked sin is or how wicked sin feels or how much brokenness is in the world. And it can feel like we're just weighed down by all of that. But when Jesus comes back, he puts an end to it immediately. Like there, it's, he doesn't even break a sweat. It's over. That's what Jesus does when he comes back. Look at, look at what Revelation 21 says again, verse four. Verse four, Revelation 21, he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. When Jesus comes back, he puts an end to all of this. All sin, all brokenness, all evil, all pain, all suffering, all hardship. All of the difficult things that we toil and strive with and wrestle with in this life are put to an end. And we will spend eternity with Jesus free from all of that. It's all done. He takes care of all of it. He puts an end to Satan and his reign of terror on this earth, locked away forever. That's amazing. All right, so the final defeat of sin and evil, the third thing that happens is judgment. There is a judgment. When Jesus returns, he does bring with him judgment. 
The Bible speaks often of the final judgment in different places. One of those is Hebrews 9.27. And just as it is appointed for people to die once, and after this, judgment. That's, that's where we're headed. And I know that sounds bleak and, you know, that's kind of a downer. And Travis, we're talking about good news. I don't want to talk about death. Well, that's, that's coming for each of us. Unless we're here when Jesus returns, which will be awesome. And we'll talk about what happens when, when he does. If we're still alive like that, that would be amazing. Like that would be really cool to see. But if, if that doesn't happen, our end on this earth ends in, in death. All of us will die. Every single person will die. And our, our culture is obsessed with this idea. Obsessed with this. And it's a culture that, that doesn't like to talk about the afterlife, right? Like non-believers, uh, this atheistic culture that we find ourselves in that is so far away from God, it just is, is terrified of death because it's this, it's this unknown, right? Like what happens when we die? We don't know. We don't know. And, and when we don't know something, it, it can fill us with fear and terror and stress and worry and anxiety. Well, when we come to scripture, we don't have to worry about that. We know. We know what's going to happen at the end. We're going to die and we're going to come face to face with our creator. And there will be a judgment. At the end of all time, there will be a judgment. Revelation speaks of it in this way. Revelation 20, 11 through 12 says, there, Then I saw a great white throne and one seated on it. Earth and heaven fled from his presence and no place was found for them. I also saw the dead, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened. Another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged according to their works by what was written in the books. Jesus speaks of it this way in Matthew 25. And Matthew 24 and 25 is just chock full of, of a bunch of eschatology. And again, there's no shortage of ideas and thoughts about what's happening in there. But, but in, in Matthew 25, he gives certain parables about what is going to happen at the end. And one of those is, is Matthew 25, starting in verse 31. This is often called the parable of the sheep. And the goats, it says this, when the son of man comes in his glory. So again, that, that's telling when Jesus returns, when he comes back, this is what's going to happen. When the son of man comes in his glory, all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And if then you jump down to verse 41 here, he says this about the goats. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and I'll, I'll stop. You know, I'll get into that and you guys will be here forever. I'm going to stop there. Let's jump down to 46. And then they will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So that this gives us an idea of, of what's going to happen at the end. Jesus separates believers from unbelievers. Those who, those who have put their faith in Jesus from those who have lived a life in sin and unrepentance and disbelief. And there will be a judgment. We all face a judgment. Now, now that can, and sometimes in, in believers, that, that can bring a sense of fear. But I want, I want to tell you that, remind us of the truth of the good news of scripture is, is we don't have to fear that judgment day. When we stand before Jesus at the end, we are judged into eternal life and eternal blessing from God. 
So we don't have to fear that day because our judgment has already been taken care of. That, that brings us back to what we talked about a couple weeks ago with justification. Justification is this declaration that I am righteous. And as Romans 8.1 says, those of us who are in Jesus, who have put our faith in Jesus, there is no condemnation for us. That's not just a pronouncement for here, right now, in this life. That is an eschatological pronouncement of righteousness. That judgment, that declaration carries us to the end. So on that day of judgment, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are judged into eternal life. Now, for those who continue in their unbelief and unrepentance of sin, there's a different judgment. Unbelievers are judged into eternal torment and suffering and separation from God and hell forever. That should cause fear. So there will be a judgment. The fourth thing that happens is glorification. Glorification is another thing that the Bible talks a lot about. We kind of hinted at this last week, but glorification, eternity, eternity for non-believers and believers, the Bible tells us will be lived out in bodily form. So there will be this final resurrection and believers will live eternity out in a physical body and unbelievers will live out eternity in hell in a physical body. Now, I want to talk more about what what it means for believers. And there's this idea of glorification that we will be given these these glorified, perfected bodies. And it'll be be amazing and awesome. And and there's places that speak to this. So Colossians 3, 4 says, When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We will be with him in glory, glorified people. 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 53 says, Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. For this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility, and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. That's our promise as believers. That's the glorified body that we're talking about. And that's the cool thing. Like if we were, are still alive when Jesus returns, what that tells us is we're going to be caught up in the air with him as he's coming down. We'll meet him in the air. We'll be transformed and changed. And it'll just be this awesome, incredible moment. Like that would just be incredible to live out. But if we're already dead, then it says we're going to be raised back up and given this incorruptible, immortal body. Philippians 3, 20 through 21 says, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly wait for a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. This is a promise from Jesus that we can hold on to, that we will live out for all of eternity in this perfected, glorified body. And look, I don't, I don't know all of what that means, but it sounds awesome. It sounds great. It sounds like I won't have to do any working out or exercising for eternity. Sounds like I can eat as many tacos as I want without fear of what it will do to my body and my heart and my cholesterol, right? Like that sounds amazing. I don't know about y'all, but that sounds awesome. Sign me up for that. That sounds amazing. It's a glorification. And maybe I'm completely wrong on that, but y'all just let me have this, all right? All right, the last thing that that we'll talk about what happens at the end is is what we read in, in Revelation 21, the new heavens and the new earth, the new heavens and the new earth. Let's look again at at verses one through three here. Revelation 21, verses one through three. 
Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them and they will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. That's our eternal home. The new heavens and the new earth, that's where we spend eternity. I don't know about you, but I, I grew up in church and, you know, in, in kids ministry and, you know, VBS and that kind of thing. I was always told, you know, put your faith in Jesus and you'll spend eternity in heaven with him. And then I come to scripture as an adult and I'm like, that's, that's not exactly what it says. It says new heavens and new earth. And that sounds even better. Like that sounds even more awesome, right? Let's talk about that because this is our eternal home. We will spend eternity on a newly created, fully restored, free from corruption and sin earth. A new creation fully restored earth, free from the corruption. And like, that sounds awesome. So that's our eternal home. We should talk about spending eternity with Jesus and his presence. It's here on the new heavens and new earth. Uh, another place that speaks to this is Isaiah 65. I think it just put, points out this really beautiful picture of the new heavens and new earth. And it says this starting in verse 17, Isaiah 65. For I will create new heavens and a new earth, and the past events will not be remembered or come to mind. Then I will be glad and rejoice forever in what I am creating. For I will create Jerusalem to be a joy and its people to be a delight. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and be glad in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will no longer be heard in her. In her, a nursing infant will no longer live only a few days or an old man not live out his days. Indeed, the one who dies at a hundred years old will be mourned as a young man. And the one who misses a hundred years will be considered cursed. People will build houses and live in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will not build and others live in them. They will not plant and others eat for my people's lives will be like the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will fully enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor without success or bear children destined for disaster for they will be a people blessed by the Lord along with their descendants. Even before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like cattle, but the serpent's food will be dust. They will not do what is evil or destroy on my entire holy mountain, says the Lord. So this kind of gives us in, in poetic and symbolic form what perfection is going to be like. And it's going to be, again, lived out on a physical earth, a fully perfected earth. This is where we will spend eternity. And again, this, this is what brings us back to Genesis 1 and 2. That's what we've been talking about for a few weeks that God has, from the moment Genesis 3 happens, the moment the fall happens, God has been working to bring us back to Genesis 1, dwelling with him in complete perfection on a perfected creation, a perfected earth. And that's exactly what's going to happen at the end. God brings us back to that. He will dwell with us. We will dwell with him in complete perfection. And it'll be awesome. This is where we, where we perfectly live out what Genesis 1 calls us to, to be his image, to rule with him over all of creation. It happens in the new heavens and new earth. So what will this look like? What, what kind of pictures does, does scripture give us here? We, again, we don't have all the answers with this. 
but it's going to be amazing. It's going to be incredible. And I know for one thing, it's, it's going to be what I was often told in, in growing up, again, growing up in church and in elementary school, middle high school, I was often told like, oh, heaven's going to be awesome. Heaven's going to be awesome. It's going to be like this one big, amazing, long worship service. And they said that to kind of stoke the, the excitement in, in us as, as kids. And like, if I can be real with y'all for a minute, if I can just be vulnerable and you can be like, I can't believe he said that. I know, I know. I'm just trying to be honest with y'all. Like when, that, when they said that, I'd be like, yeah, that's cool. But in my head, I'm thinking, that might be a little boring. Is that all we're going to do? We're just going to be singing for all of eternity? I, I, there's got to be more than that. And there is. Is there going to be worship in heaven? Yes. Is there going to be singing? Yes. Is there going to be praising Jesus? Yes. But there's also going to be more than that. Again, because what we see in Genesis 1 gives us a picture of what is going to happen for all of eternity. So we're, we're going to have relationships, perfected relationships with God. We're going to have perfect relationships with one another. I mean, just imagine what that would be like, perfected relationships with other people. That seems unheard of right now. But again, there's going to be no more sin. So that's out the door and we can have these perfect relationships with one another. We're going to have jobs and responsibility. Remember, before the fall, there was work. Adam was given a job. Work is not a result of the fall. Work being hard and frustrating and annoying and driving us crazy, that's a result of the fall. But work and responsibility and these God-given gifts that he's given us are going to be lived out in perfection for all of eternity. We're going to be uh, in with, with creation. I mean, think of the beautiful places that are on this earth. And I remember when Kendra and I went to Hawaii before we had kids, like it was beautiful. Last year we went to Arizona and man, that place is gorgeous. There's so many beautiful views there. And it's awesome and amazing. And, and this earth has just incredible beauty to it, but it's all tainted with sin. I mean, we think stuff looks good now. Imagine you've removed the sin and corruption that, that taints creation. Oh man, that's going to be amazing. That's going to be awesome. There's going to be animals there. I don't know why Isaiah talks about a lion. There's not going to be cats there. Cats don't go to heaven. Cats aren't in the new creation. They go, they go to the other place, all right? And you can't convince me otherwise. I don't have a verse for that, but I, just, I know that to be true in my heart. But there will be animals there. I'm just kidding, y'all. But there will be. I think there will be animals and, and I think there, there might be, you know, travel. I don't know. Maybe we can just, you know, zap to space if we want to. I don't know. I have no idea. But it's going to be, here's what I do know. Eternity will be perfected life. Life lived out in perfection. I mean, imagine life right now just perfected. No more issues, no more struggle, no more sin, no more brokenness, no more sadness in the world. Perfected life. That's what eternity is going to be like. It's going to be awesome. It's going to be awesome. So that's the new heavens and new earth. All right, so what does all of this mean for me? We know what, what happens at the end. What does this mean for me? Well, real quick, let me, let me, give, you, let me give you four things about, about why we should reflect on the end, why we should keep in mind the ultimate end of all things. Why should we look ahead and look longingly towards this future, this promised end? So four things that this affects for me right here, right now. One thing in, in dwelling on God's promised end, one thing it does is it gives me vision. It gives me vision. And when I say that word vision, I'm not talking about God's revelation or some leadership or business turn. I'm, I'm talking about our, our actual eyes. I'm talking about our actual vision, what we look at, what we focus on. What we see, what we look at, what we focus on is, is really important. It's really important. I don't know if you guys are like me at all, but 
I'm kind of oblivious to my surroundings. I just am. I'm completely unaffected by my surroundings. Like, just to get, like, I could give you stories of how bad it is for me, but just an example would be like, if Kendra were to buy a new decoration for our house, I might go weeks before I ever notice that thing. And it could be big. It could be a significant change in our house, and I probably wouldn't even notice it. I'm completely unaffected by my surrounding. And, and sometimes I, I like that. I, I very much like that about my personality. And there's other times where I'm like, man, I wish I was a little bit more detailed in noticing things because I'll just, I, I won't pay attention to that. I won't notice the details. I won't, uh, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll bump into something that I didn't know was there. Like, I'm just, I'm just oblivious to my surrounding. What we focus on, what we look at matters. What we focus on in life matters. If we're focused on the things of this world, That's what we're going to live towards. That's what we're going to give our heart and our lives to. That's what we'll live for and be consumed by. So we need to ask ourselves, where's my focus? What am I looking at in this life? What am I longing for in this life? What do I most want in this life? What gets the most of my focus and attention? I mean, think about the things that we look at and things that we, what we spend our time on each week. I mean, how often are we spending our time looking at this or scrolling through things on this or just sitting in front of the TV? Like, what do we focus on? What do we spend our time on? And look, some of those things can be good. Like, it's okay to spend time with, with hobbies or things that you like to do or with your family or at work. Like, it's not, it's not bad to spend time on that stuff. But if, we, if it takes too much of our focus, if it takes too much of our attention, if it takes too much of our lives, man, it can really get bad for us. It can get bad. Because God knows that, that the more we look at the things of this world, the less we're looking at him. When you read the book of Revelation, the most repeated command that you see in Revelation is look. It's look. Look, as, as God is giving these visions to the apostle John, each one starts with, look, and then I saw, and I saw this, and I see that. Look over here. All the angels, whoever's delivering these visions to him is saying, look over here. Look, John, divert your focus here. I want your eyes here. And the reason for that is, again, remember the context. Revelation is written to these churches who are facing intense pressure and persecution from the world around them. And when that's happening, when things around you just seem to be crumbling and breaking and, and wanting your focus to be, to be away from Jesus, when that, that's happening, man, it's easy to get consumed with that. It's easy to focus on that and live for that and be only thinking about that. And what Revelation tells us is, no, don't focus on that. Focus on Jesus. Look to Jesus. Focus on him and what he's doing. Look to him. Get your eyes off of what's happening in front of you and look to Jesus. Focus on him. This is the first step and the other things that we're gonna talk about here in a moment, that this is the first step is, is looking to Jesus, diverting our focus and our mind to him. Colossians 3 says this, Colossians 3, one through three. So if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ and God. Get your focus off of what's happening here and let's get it on Jesus. Let's focus on him. Let's get our eyes on him. Another thing, thinking about and looking ahead to our promised end and what it gives us is it gives us perspective. It gives us perspective. 
looking ahead to our promised end and, and what's happening at the end and where we will spend eternity helps give me proper perspective in life. It helps me understand what's really important and what really matters in this world. And look, we, we have a lot of things in life that we elevate to this level of importance and just what we want most, right? Like we just, we hold tightly to the things of this world. Think about the things that you long for most or the things that, that you really desire or think about it in terms of this, if this one thing was taken away from me, how would that affect me? If your job was taken away, if your bank account all of a sudden showed zeros instead of whatever you have in there. If we're like Job and everything in our life, including our family, was stripped away from us. How would that affect us? We make things in this world far more important than they should be. We devote too much of ourselves, so much of ourselves to things that have little or no eternal significance. Look, I'm not saying you can't enjoy the stuff that God has given us here. Like he's given us blessings to enjoy so that we can praise him and have gratitude for him and, and live even more in faithfulness. It's not that you can't ever have anything nice or enjoy the world, right? That's not what we're talking about. But when we devote our lives to the things in this world, that's when things go bad. That's when things go bad. So God wants us, again, to focus on him and look to him. This is what 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 says. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. So again, it's not that the things of this world are necessarily bad. Sure, there's a lot of bad stuff, but it's not all bad. But when we, when we hold tightly to it, we're giving our lives to something that is wasting away, something that will not last. And Jesus wants us instead to give our lives to him and his work and his word and his life that he's called us to. That's what he wants us to do because that has eternal significance. That has eternal weight and value. So the things of this world, we need to hold loosely to them instead of with a closed fist. So the end gives us perspective. The last, or third thing, third thing, focusing on the end gives me mission. It gives me mission. Focusing on the end should motivate me for mission, for living my life fully devoted to Jesus. And one of those ways specifically is with evangelism. Focusing on the end should prompt me to want to share the gospel. Why? Because eternity is at stake. Eternity is at stake. People who continue in their disbelief and unrepentance will spend eternity in hell. There are people in your life, in your world, at your workplace, in your neighborhood, maybe even in your family, your close friends who don't believe in Jesus. And they are on their way to hell. And God has placed them in your life so that you can tell them about Jesus. You can tell them about Jesus. And will they all listen? No, probably not. Probably not. They might not listen. They might laugh you off. They might say, hey, don't ever talk to me again. But I don't know about you, but I, I would rather go to bed at night knowing that, that I shared the truth instead of shied away from it. Because eternity is at stake, guys. This matters. 
And Jesus has invited us into his work and his mission to help bring people to him. Like how awesome and amazing is that? Just by us talking about Jesus, sharing Jesus, inviting people even to church, whatever that looks like, just talking about Jesus, pointing people to Jesus. God does that. He, he, he brings us to a place where we get to partner with him in changing people's lives for all of eternity. That's amazing. Let's not neglect that. Focusing on the end gives us mission. It motivates us for mission. Another thing it does is, is when we live in full devotion for Jesus now here on this earth, it gives me practice for the future. It gives me practice for eternity. There's another parable in Matthew chapter 25. It's often called the parable of the talents. I'll read a little bit of that. It starts in verse 14. And again, these are parables based on what is going to happen at the end. So Jesus says this in chapter 25 of Matthew, verse 14, for it is just like a man about to go on a journey. So the end is, is about like, kind of like a person going on a journey. Okay, sounds good, Jesus. What does that mean? He called his own servants and entrusted his possessions to them. To one, he gave five talents, to another two talents, to another one talent, depending on each one's ability. Then he went on a journey immediately. The man who had received five talents went and put them to work and earned five more. And the same way, the man who earned two earned two more, or had with two earned two more. But the man who had received one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five talents approached and presented five more and said, Master, you gave me five talents. See, I've earned five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share in your master's joy. The man who had two talents also approached and said, Master, you gave me two talents. See, I've earned two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Share your master's joy. This idea of, of being given talents, I believe, is a symbol for our lives. God has given us this life to be lived out in faithfulness to him. And we should all be striving and working towards that day where we stand before Jesus and he says, well done, good and faithful servant. So how are we living for Jesus right here, right now? How are we walking in faithfulness to him? What are we doing with the talent, the life that he's given us? How are we walking in faithfulness with our lives right here, right now? And this is the incredible thing about it is, is Jesus says, man, if you're faithful here with the small things of this life, this life is a small thing in Jesus' mind. If we're faithful with the small things, he's gonna entrust us even more with the things in eternity. And look, I don't know what that means. I'm not really sure what he's talking about there, but I know that man, if we're faithful here, he's gonna give us more in eternity. That sounds cool. Again, I don't know what that means exactly, but I know the call here from Jesus is to live with faithfulness here and now. And that gives me practice for what I'm going to be doing for all of eternity. So let's be good stewards with the life that God has given us. And the last thing, and we'll end here, when we live with the end in mind, when we focus on what is happening, this promised end that we have, it gives me strength. It gives me strength. This is what the entire book of Revelation is about, is what we've been talking about. God gives these churches struggling in the midst of difficult persecution and cultural pressure. He gives them this book to bring strength in the here and now. 
I can have strength in Jesus to face whatever life may bring because I know what's happening at the end. I know that my God is at work right here, right now, bringing his plan to completion. It gives us strength. I love uh, how Peter begins his, his letter, 1 Peter. I just want to read a couple of verses here. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, Blessed be the God and, our, and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. The audience of 1 Peter is very similar to the audience of Revelation. People, followers of Jesus, facing intense persecution and cultural pressure to walk away from Jesus. If you were to continue reading here in these next few verses, Peter talks about the trials and the suffering these people are walking through. And Peter says, you have a hope in the midst of pain and suffering. And I love what he says here, that the hope is not based on this life in this world right here, right now. No, it's based on what's coming to us. It's based on the promise of eternity. We can have hope in the difficulties of life right here, right now, because of what's coming to us, because of what's promised to us. When we look to the end, we can have hope in this life because we look forward to a day when all pain and suffering and evil and brokenness is put to an end. We can have peace in this life because there's, we know there's gonna be a day where, where the struggle, the battle is over and it's fully won and it's done. As Jesus says in Revelation 21, it's finished. It's finished. That should give us peace in this life. We can live here in this life with full faith and trust and devotion to Jesus because we know that he's going to deliver on his promises. We know that. And we can live without fear because we're, we know that we're secure with Jesus. We're safe and secure with him always and forever. So we live in this life, in this kind of, uh, theologians talk about it, this, this in-between, this in-between. There's this, this one uh, idea in scripture that, that everything's already done. Everything that's already coming to us, it's already done. It's already finished. It's already complete in Jesus. Jesus already right now is reigning over everything. Jesus already right now has fully defeated Satan and his work. So there's this, this version, this, this idea where one side of it is, is it's already done. And then we also live in this tension of, of well, well, it's not yet here. It's not yet fully realized. It's not yet fully consummated, right? So we live in this, this already, not yet. So what do we do? We live with an eye to the future. We live looking ahead and longing and praying along with the words in Revelation, come Lord Jesus, come. We look ahead longing for that day to be with Jesus where he will put an end to all pain and evil and suffering and wickedness and brokenness and striving and difficult. All these, puts an end to all that. We look forward to that day. So we live with an eye to that. We also live knowing that Jesus isn't back yet, which means he's still got work to do. He's still got work to do. He's working in us to prepare us for that place, to prepare us for eternity. He's working in our community. He's working in our city. He's working in our country, in, in our world across the globe. He's working to bring his people to him, to save people from sin. He is still at work. 
as long as he hasn't come back, there is still work to be done. He's called us to participate in that work, church. So let's live with an eye focused and longing for the future. And let's live with an eye ready to do the work in the here and now. Let's live and walk in faithfulness to him. Let's live on mission because eternity is at stake. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll wrap up for today. And again, as we do every Sunday during this time, we're going to enter into a time of worship and communion. And this is a time for believers in the room. It's time for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus. It's a time for us to, to spend in prayer. And maybe throughout this time, we, we've realized, man, I, I've been living too much for this place. I've been living too much for the things of this world. I've given too much of myself to, to this. And it's time for me to come back to Jesus. It's time for me to look to him. Come back to him. That's the beauty of scripture is repentance and turning to Jesus is always an option. It's always an option. So maybe we use this time and just repenting of sin. Jesus, forgive me for, for giving myself and my heart to the things of this world. Lord, fill me with love and devotion to you, Jesus. Or maybe this time has just brought you to a sense of worship. And it's like, man, I can't wait for that day. That, that day is going to be awesome. Well, we can prepare for that day right here, right now by, by worshiping and praising Jesus. So believer in the room, those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, this time is for you to spend a moment with him, right? That's what communion means. It means to commune with Jesus, to have fellowship and be with Jesus. So be with Jesus in this moment. Spend some time in prayer, spend some time in worship. And as you are prepared, you go to either table on, on these sides of the room and you, you take the bread, you take the cup, you eat and you drink. You celebrate and worship Jesus for his broken body for your sins, his shed blood for your sins and his resurrection from the dead. For those who are here who, who maybe have never put their faith in Jesus, this time isn't for you, but, but it can be. It can be. Jesus tells us in, in Romans 10, 13, that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So maybe it's time to call on the name of the Lord. Death and judgment is coming for each of us. I don't say that to scare you. I say it as truth from scripture and we will stand before Jesus one day. If we put our faith in Jesus, we can live with the promise knowing that there is no condemnation. So if you want to put your faith in Jesus, you want to trust in him and step into and begin that eternal life. Now, I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you, answer any questions you might have. Anybody here would love to do that as well. And you just can even in your own seat, just say, Jesus, I'm trusting you for salvation. I'm looking to you for salvation. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you for your word, for your story in scripture, for, for the blessing that is the Bible, Lord. You've given us your very words, your own words to learn about you, to, to see who you are and, and all that you do and, and, and who we are and, and how we're supposed to live and what this means for me, Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your message. Thank you for the good news of the gospel, Lord. And Lord, we echo the words of Revelation. Lord, come, Lord Jesus. Come. So I pray that we live with an end in mind. I pray that we live looking and longing for that day, Lord. And I pray that until that day comes, Lord, we will live lives fully devoted to you, that we will live lives on mission for you, Jesus. 
Thank you for who you are. Thank you for all that you've done. Lord, we love you. We glorify your name today. In your name we pray, amen.